Welcome to the It Is Written podcast. As doubts about God's will arise, the world resorts to feelings and experts. We go to the law and to the testimony of God's word. In today's episode, we're going to take a look at a unique parable that Jesus taught in Luke 16. What level of zeal and dedication does Jesus expect us to have for the work that we do in his kingdom? So Jesus often taught in parables, which are kind of illustrations to make a spiritual point. Many of the parables just dealt with everyday life situations that would occur frequently. But some of the parables, Jesus actually kind of told a story that maybe could conceivably happen sometimes, but he he invents the story to to fit the teaching that he's trying to give. Some of those stories, some of the illustrations Jesus uses are a little disconcerting because they don't always appear ethical. We think about Jesus teaching people how to rob a strong man's house. You're talking about the thief in the night, and you think, what's he doing? But he's using even worldly or unethical illustrations to prove a spiritual point. That's true in what we're going to look at today. Look at Luke chapter 16. Would you read verses 1 through 7? Now he said to the disciples, There was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. So he called the manager in and asked, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told them. Sit down quickly. Write fifty. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures a week, he said. Take your invoice, he told them, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. So here's a a man who's got a desk job in finance, and uh, he's mismanaged somehow. He's done something, whether it's unethical or he just messed up. And he's about to be fired, and he finds that out. Now, usually in our culture, the firms would escort you out the moment you knew that and wouldn't let you do anything. Maybe this shows why. So what he does, he knows he's got just a few days or weeks, we don't know. And he thinks, well, what am I going to do to provide for myself when I'm fired? And he thinks he's not strong enough to uh, dig. You know, he's used to his white-collar job, and he doesn't want to beg. He hits upon a plan. He takes each one of his master's, uh, the people who owe his master money, and he tells them he'll doctor the books, write down that they owe this much or that much. He's reducing their indebtedness to his owner. And uh, as he does that, he's creating uh, goodwill. They're going to take care of him once he gets fired because he's helped them so much financially, and they certainly wouldn't want him exposing what they've done. And so here's the guy who tries to feather his nest by plucking his master which is a pretty, uh, pretty ornery thing to do, but it worked. And the interesting thing is, in verse 8, his master praised the unrighteous manager because he'd acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. He's not saying that what he did was right, but he's saying that often the world is better served by its servants than Jesus is by his. There's a whole different goal, but the children of this generation are often more diligent to take care of their physical life 
than we are to take care of our spiritual life. Or Christians take less pains to win heaven than the world does to gain the earth. And so he's using analogies that help us to think about how should we be pursuing our goals. And I want you to think about some applications of that. This guy had a lot of foresight. He realized he wasn't going to be in his position long and he was going to be fired. And so he knew he needed to prepare for that future event. People in the world often plan and prepare ahead. They do business projections and investments and market forecasts and they buy insurance and they get education and they do all kinds of things envisioning what's going to be best for them in the long run. And we also believe there's going to be a drastic change that's going to occur in our environment and that's going to happen soon. Are we preparing for that? The world prepares for those events. They, they realize, oh, if I'm going to get fired, well, I, better, I better do something. If I'm going to have a big change, if I'm going to have to prepare for some career, I need to do the things that it's going to take to get there. We believe we're going to face a judgment day. Are we prepared for that? We should be having that same uh, foresight, that same way to look to the future and use our present life to prepare, prepare for that future life. So, Gary, do you see a connection between the parable and what he says after this? Because that's where I've had some problems with this parable. Yeah, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. We, we, but I do, I think, uh, especially the next few verses. Think about the realism of this guy. He sizes up the situation. He doesn't whimper or whine or complain. You know, we do that a lot. Well, it's not fair. I don't like this. Well, I mean, if it's the reality, you might as well deal with it. You know, a lot of people complain, what God says is just too hard. It's just too difficult. I can't do it. Maybe God will make an exception for me. You know, God will just understand that I can't do what he wants me to do. We're kind of a generation of moral wimps. Mm -hmm. You know, we just give in and uh, throw up our hands and like, well, this is, I'm just not going to try. The Lord's army is no place for crybabies. Here's a guy, this was getting fired is not going to be a picnic. But he faced it realistically. He faced it with his eyes open and dealt with it. Another lesson you learn is promptness. He acted at once. As soon as he found this out, he immediately began summoning his master's debtors and, and talking to them. We, we, Jesus said, the night is coming when no man can work. We need to prepare for that night. We need to prepare for the time when the, we can't make any changes in our life that will help us prepare for eternity. If we knew for example, that the Lord would return tonight. Would we live this day differently? You know, we, we don't live like we think this gig's going to be up anytime soon. But it will. We know that. And it'll come at an unexpected time. We need to be prepared. And then another thing I see in this guy that's really impressive, he's zealous. He calls all the master's debtors in. You know, you would think maybe it would do if he just called some of the ones who owned the mo owed the most. You know, won't that be enough? But of course, whoever tries to just get a job that pays him just barely enough, we want all the wealth we can get. And uh, people want to get ahead, not just do enough to get by. And they do that in all kinds of areas. You know, if it's sports, people don't just train enough that they think they can walk out on the field and not die. They want to win. You know, if it's politics, if it's business, if it's academics, whatever it is, we're used to putting all of our effort into it, to be really zealous. And we applaud people who work hard to gain a goal. If they're passionate about it, we think, yeah, that's, that's the kind of person who's a go-getter. 
And that's the kind of person that's going to be successful. Why don't we have that same vision spiritually? We're looking at something a whole lot more important than winning a game or getting some money or winning a political office or whatever. We're looking at our eternal destiny. Yeah. We ought to be really zealous. And I, Man, that kind of hits me when I think about evangelism and wanting to call all the people in and say, hey, it's all ending. Well, let's go ahead and settle this now. We don't act like we think it is, do we? Right, yeah. If we, we thought it was, wouldn't we be much more aggressive about telling people about the Lord and, and speaking about Him and teaching others about Him and so forth? Being a Christian really should be a radical way of life. We believe, commit, are committed to the idea of Jesus' return and, and the fact that there's a judgment day. That ought to really impact us right now. So this guy, in a, in a worldly sense, does exactly the things we ought to be doing in a spiritual sense. Yeah, great point. But then he goes on to talk about some other points that relate to this. Look at verse 9. I say to you, make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Here's a guy who has temporary use of his master's funds. He's soon going to be discharged. He uses those funds to provide for his future. We need to be using our earthly wealth to provide for our spiritual future. When Paul was talking in first. Timothy 6, he talks about instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may lay hold of that which is life indeed. We use our wealth, we use the money God's given us to provide for our spiritual future. Jesus talked about not laying up treasures on the earth, but laying up treasures in heaven in Matthew 6. So we use the financial resources God has blessed us with with an eye toward providing for ourselves spiritually, that is being generous and investing in the work of the Lord and, and not being greedy and selfish with the financial blessings God's given. So why does he call wealth or money unrighteous here? What's the point of that? Yeah, I think the idea is that this wealth is often, greedy. we're often greedy for the wealth. We're covetous and we desire it in the wrong sort of way. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes unrighteous because of how we deal with it. But we need to use that that is often used improperly for the Lord instead of for these unrighteous goals. That makes sense. And then in verse 10, he says, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? You think about how we do. If you have a new employee, you don't entrust him with the most critical jobs in the company right at first. You trust him with, entrust him with some menial task that doesn't matter at all to see what kind of a worker he is, see how responsible he is, see how, how well he does the job. And your faithfulness in those little things will determine your, your trustworthiness and your, their, their willingness to give you a harder and more responsible job. That's the same way it is with the Lord. We can look at things that we do right here and say, well, it's such a small thing. It doesn't really make that much difference. Satan will whisper in our ear, it's such a little sin. It's not really a big deal. Well, God tests us in the small things before he entrusts us with something greater. You know, we're only stewards. We have what's not ours. We have it for a limited time. But what we do with what God's given us, even if it be small, is the criteria, the test, or whether or not we'll be entrusted with eternal life. So we need to really take seriously the time and resources we have. 
And then he finally gives the challenge in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. God is an exclusive master, and we have to make a choice. We have to decide whether or not we're going to be loyal to the Lord, or we're going to be loyal to our greed, our wealth, our material possessions here in this life. So it's really interesting. Jesus, he, he squeezes a lot out of that one parable. He does. And almost, he kind of makes different points depending on how you look at the guy. I've yeah. never thought about 10 and 11 in that context. It's really cool. Yeah. But it makes a point that the parables are multifaceted and you're supposed to chew on them and think about them. And sometimes in more difficult parables like that, that's really what we just need to do is take some time to meditate on it. Yes, Jesus was a master teacher. And when he's able to design a parable like this that teaches so many lessons and teaches it even to earthly-minded people in terms that they can relate to. It just shows his uh, tremendous ability to communicate the lessons God wants us to learn. Thank you for listening to the It Is Written podcast. If you have any questions or comments that you would like to share with us, feel free to send Gary an email at garyfisher1063 at gmail.com. We hope you have a blessed day.